Well, welcome, everyone, to episode six of That's So Second Millennium. This is our podcast exploring frontiers of faith and reason, science and religion. And I'm Bill Schmidt. I'm Paul Giesting. And exactly. Paul Giesting is a, a Dr. Paul Giesting, uh, is not only our co-host, uh, but uh, a faith-filled uh, uh, Ph.D. Uh, geologist. And uh, has spent uh, many years doing some deep thinking about both science and uh, spirituality and metaphysics. And uh, last episode, we had a very good discussion going about evolution. I wanted to continue with that in this episode, if that's okay, Paul. Sure. Uh, I guess uh, you you en- ended the episode on a tantalizing note of the idea of um, uh, evolution uh, far from uh, some former uh, faith-based views that uh, uh, evolution was a uh, a Um, no-no. Evolution can indeed be an ambassador to the culture at large, and I wanted to ask you to maybe expand on that a little bit. Well, so the term evolution, you know, it comes from, I mean, obviously it comes from the Latin, so volvera to turn, and you stick an E in front of it, you get evolution, to turn outward. So the the definition, you know, of the word in Latin, the cognate words in Latin would be sort of a turning out, and of course, the if you've ever read the Aeneid, you can, uh, <laughs> if you ever a chance to read the Aeneid in Latin, like I said, I believe I said earlier, you know, oh, yes. uh Virgil uses the word volvera in its forms to mean all sorts of motion or change. And so likewise, this word could mean a whole bunch of things. But, uh, you know, one, one typical meaning might be a flower unfurling, right? So you have a flower bud and it a volvera. You know, it, it turns, you know, it opens up and it turns, the, the petals turn around and they turn outward. And so that's, you know, one of the one of the classic sort of pictures you, you would get of the word, you know, in its earlier, and it's Latin meaning, it's classical Latin meaning, and then, you know, it, it would preserve this meaning through medieval times. And then we would borrow it and start using it, you know, as, as we've done since the, um, since the Renaissance, you know, taken these Greek and uh, Latin terms and started using them in these technical senses. So... And there, so there's nothing about that. I mean, that's already, gosh, if you sit and think about it, you know, what is, what is Christian doctrine about, you know, what, what was the Old Testament, right? You know, but it was a progressive revelation of God, you know, in different ways. And, you know, you, by, by the time you've racked up all of the different books, you know, all of the different literary styles and all the different approaches, you know, everything from the historical books, the narratives, um, the law, the Mosaic law, the the Psalms, um, core piece of the uh, Old Testament, um, and then and, you know, and, the, and then all the different prophetic writings and the and the and the wisdom literature, and all uh-huh. of the you know every you know, and the prophetic writings ranging from you know fairly straightforward Jeremiah say telling the people you know to stop you know to stop reverencing idols to stop you know, their, you know, whatever perverse sexual or economic practices, um, all the way to, you know, the stories, you know, Daniel, the quote prophet, uh, 
with the the stories that have been collected there, the narratives there, and you know, the sort of parables. Um, you know, whether the the Book of Judith, like you know, is practically one long parable where you know all of the enemies of Israel kind of you know rolled up together and you know turned into this super enemy army that comes and besieges this little town and God saves it through the mechanism of Judith. Um, so the, all of that, you know, progressively unfurls, you know, you learn things from, you know, different books of the Old Testament, you know, so you, you could read Hosea and that whole, you know, tender, you know, touching description of, of God's care for Israel as, you know, the care of a parent for a child. Um, yeah. Compared to, you know, that that's showing a different aspect of God uh, than it is, you know, than say, you know, the Exodus narrative, um, where the where the Israelites are, you know, there before this, you know, frightening smoking mountain. Right. Um, so that's and that's always been, of course, you know, that that's been part of Christian understanding of the Old Testament since there's been a Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so there's certainly. You know, there's certainly definitive stages. You know, evolution passes certain milestones, and things are never the same afterward. You know, evolution is, you know, just like our discussion about shades of gray. Evolution isn't just a anywhere, everywhere. Um, that's you know what some people seem to want it to be, but in right. fact, right. you know, it, it progresses. It passes certain levels of complexity, and things are never the same. Even if you think about biological evolution, you know, the, the change from prokaryotes to eukaryotes from these, you know, simple little, un, you know, relatively undifferentiated cells, although even they are, you know, amazing, complex entities, you know, with all those chemical reactions of, you know, thousands and thousands of different types to, you know, just, just to run a bacterium. But then you go up to a protist with a nucleus and organelles and, you know, things are just never the same. Things are there's the old level of simplicity is still there. You know, bacteria are still with us, but you know the new, you know, the new complexity is has you know changed things. Multicellular life appears and has changed things permanently. You know, we haven't gone back to there being not multicellular life. And even though individual multicelled organisms have died out, you know that that process is still continued. Um, and so and so we you know I bring that up to say you know. In Christian understanding, you know, there was a definitive stage of the New Testament, right? But there's, you know, revelation, that there's a sense of revelation that's closed. You know, you, mm. if you, to tie it back to the biological me, uh, metaphor, you know, how are you going to get more multi-celled than multi-celled, right? You know, once, <laughs> once you can stack cells together, you can just keep stacking cells together until you have a blue whale or in something even bigger than that. You know, there's yeah. no there's no intrinsic rule. So we now have all of that. You know that that was a that was a point in time at which we passed one of these milestones. But it's not as if things don't keep changing, right? So we, I mean, we can maybe uh, wind up the episode with some of that you know discussion. I think there's some things I'd like to save for that, perhaps. Okay. Huh. Well, uh, would it help to uh, concretize? at this uh, evolutionary uh, principle um, right away with just a uh, sampling of how it fits in with your own field of geology? Yeah, I mean, this is a, so this is an example, you know, I, oh, I don't know, it was maybe, trying to calculate back, 
not quite 10 years ago, I was at a conference and I noticed, you know, wandering around the poster session, if you've never been to a scientific conference, um, certainly the ones that I've been to in geology, they are structured, you know, so most people have a 15-minute talk, and you're supposed to leave time for questions at the end. So they are bang, 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 bang. Um, yeah. And then there are poster sessions, and yeah. often they're going simultaneously. So you could have, you know, depending on the conference at the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco every December, oh, gosh, are there, there must be at least 40 talks running simultaneously and a wow. poster session with thousands of posters, um, you know, it's some subset of people standing by their poster at any given In fact, you usually have to actually take your poster down each. I mean, that's a conference with, uh, I think, any more, it's 20-plus thousand people. Um, so it's a big deal. Um, you know, there are lots of smaller ones. But you go and, you know, so the concept of a poster, let me not get too far off track, right? So you just have a your, your, uh, your scientific work, you know, you, you often make it in individual slides and sort of have a progression uh, through, you know, it's, it's it's like a hybrid between a, you know, it's, it's obviously a poster, but it's also a a scientific paper slash a talk, you know, all of those elements sort of feed into it. So a well-constructed yeah. poster, you know, it has a little bit of text and it has a lot of images that, you know, help give you, you know, illustrate the points that you're trying to make. You usually have a little bit of an abstract to say, this is what we found. Um, and then unlike a scientific paper, you know, almost all of your explanation is just in terms of the figures. But anyway, so I was I was wandering around the poster session, and I, I realized that, you know, there was a new trend of the evolution of minerals, because evolution is such a cool, hip term that we, you know, this was, and this is to some degree my old, you know, sardonic self looking at this and saying, this is so, you know, we, we, must, we must take this trendy term and apply it to our own discipline somehow. But, you know, honestly, there's actually a lot to it. Um, so if you think about, you think about the Earth and the history of the Earth from a geological perspective, so what happened? So there's a, there's a solar nebula, and the first thing, as far as we can tell, you know, there was, it was actually, a lot of it was vaporized. A lot of it must have been hot enough and, of course, thin enough, which is key. Um, <laughs> as long as things are at ultra-low pressure, you know, billionths of an atmosphere or less, um, then things can stay in essentially the gas phase simply because atoms don't crash into each other in order to condense into crystals. Uh, but once, once, you know, some shock was applied, you know, I think that's still a hypothesis that perhaps there was a, a nearby supernova. Those are handy for all sorts of reasons. They would also <laughs> salt the nebula with extra elements. And in fact, something must have done that in the very near term um, to the, before the, con the condensation of the solar system because we have isotopes like aluminum-26 you know, that, that only live a few million years and evidence, you know, the daughter isotopes for them are still present in rocks in ways that only make sense if the universe or if the uh, if the solar system condensed out of um, something that had been recently hit by a supernova and, and therefore salted with that isotope. Um, so that, so you get a certain chemistry. So you get this kind of averaged chemistry. And it's very, very what we would call reducing. Mm -hmm. so, um, so at Earth's, you know, what, what happens to an iron implement in Earth's atmosphere? It rusts, right? Right. A solid iron is not stable. 
but iron is a very, you know, iron is kind of the last element that stars make before they go haywire because there is kind of an energy low in the periodic table that if you take hydrogen and build it into helium, you drop the energy per, you know, particle in the nucleus by a lot. And if you stack three heliums together to form a carbon or four to form an oxygen atom, you then drop it even more. You build silicon, you build magnesium, you build um, sulfur on up the chain until you get to iron. If you try, so if you fuse stuff together to make iron, you have reached basically the energy minimum per proton or neutron for the nucleus. If you then start trying to fuse stuff to iron, you lose energy. You, you go back up, a, you're going back up a slope and you now have to feed more energy to it than you get out of it. And instead of, you know, and so what happens, you know, when a star is burning, there's this balance between the gravity, because stars are big. Um, the whole mass of a star is trying to, you know, weigh down on the core. But the core is releasing all of this energy. It's, you know, millions of degrees. And so that generates this sort of balance that keeps the star at about the size that it is. Um, so a supernova happens when you start trying to fuse iron and the whole game, you know, the whole game goes to hell. Um, the iron starts to, you know, you're, you're fusing iron to make heavier elements and you start to lose energy and the star contracts in on itself. And eventually you bounce off of some quantum physics, you know, phenomenon such as just neutron degeneracy, which, you know, in sort of layman's terms would mean that you can't cram the neutrons any closer together because they're as tight as they can possibly, possibly be. Um, mm -hmm. a bit of a simplification, but it's pretty close. Um, mm -hmm. And so the star will almost bounce off itself, and then you get a supernova. At least that's, uh, uh, is or at least was in the last few decades a going hypothesis for how supernovas work. So in this con, this is the only context where you can make all these heavy elements. We wouldn't have lead, for example, if it wasn't for supernovas. It's the only place that can happen. Um, but it, all of that's to say, there's a lot of iron um, because that's you know what the core of the star has made itself into when it reaches this last stage. Um, so there's a lot of iron in the early solar system, and you know iron is reduced. So what the planets originally condense out of is stuff that's you know fairly alien to what we see, you know, at Earth's surface today, because we live in this atmosphere of pure, you know, of, well, you know, pure, but we have uncombined oxygen in our atmosphere along with the nitrogen and other stuff. So as a planet, you know, so if you take Mars, Mars is a good example because uh, it doesn't have this oxygen atmosphere. Um, nevertheless, its surface is different than its core or meteorites because the planet sorted itself out. So you started with this pile of rubble. You know, it had iron. It had a lot of sulfur. I mentioned that in passing, that that's another stage in the process. Uh, it's, it's another uh, benchmark. All, all the elements have different abundances because, you know, basically because they're, they're generated in different proportions in stars. Some are easy to make and some are harder to make. The easy ones we have more of. So there's a lot of sulfides and iron. And so once you, you know, when you take the distributed particles in a nebula and condense them together, you basically get uh, gravitational potential energy out of that. So if you think of a bullet, you, know, you take a bullet, you shoot it at a metal target, what happens? You may, you've maybe never done this, Bill. I have a target out here at the farm. 
my friend Aaron yeah. comes down from Indianapolis and we shoot uh, occasionally at these targets that my dad's cousin set up, you know, a long time ago. What happens is you get a crater, right? <laughs> but if you go up and touch that metal plate right after you've shot a 38 bullet at it, it's warm. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of energy that, you know, started in the gunpowder and then was transferred to the bullet. And then when the bullet hits this metal plate, the energy has got to go somewhere where it goes is heat. And so if you have two particles, you know, if you have two meteors or meteorites or meteoroids, let me get it right, um, before they crash to Earth, they're meteoroids. If they crash into each other, they release a certain amount of potential energy depending on their speed. And that's, that's the mechanism by which that sort of gravitational potential energy gets turned into heat. So by the time you've piled up a planet, it gets warm enough on the inside that the iron and the sulfides can start to melt. And so what are they going to do? They're going to trickle down. Well, that releases more gravitational potential energy because now you're taking the heavy stuff, sorting it down toward the bottom, and that's more stable. And so the mechanism for that is that it actually rubs a little bit past the uh, mineral particles that the molten iron and sulfur are going by. There's this great poetic name for it in this National Geographic book I read back in the day. Um, they mm. called it the Iron mm. Catastrophe. It's a great name. It's fantastic. And so the planet turns itself inside out. Now, people don't usually use that term. I haven't seen the term since, sadly, in the scientific literature, which is, mm. you know, like Calvin and Hobbes, you know, the, the Calvin and Hobbes strip where Calvin says, scientists should call the Big Bang the horrendous space kablooey. <laughs> the missed opportunity. The iron catastrophe. Yeah. Fantastic. But anyway, so the planet turns itself inside out, and that means the iron has all gone down to the bottom. So if you look at Mars, to take us back to Mars, Mars went through this process. Mars is a differentiated planet. It's big enough for that. So it's got a core down there. But the rest of, so the rest of what's left behind is no longer in contact with metallic iron. And so it starts to sort itself, the planet sorts itself out into layers, and new minerals start to grow in these new environments. So there actually is, you know, as, as a planet ages, even a planet like Mars that isn't being affected by life, um, the number of minerals that you get with time, you know, goes up. There are more different minerals. There are minerals down in the core and the lower mantle um, that are in contact. You know, they're really reduced. And then you have minerals at the surface that are more oxidized. And in the case of Mars, that thin little atmosphere allows a lot of, you know, solar wind and ultraviolet radiation through. And that actually pops electrons away, which is how things get oxidized. That's what that actually technically means. It means it has fewer electrons per atom than it um, otherwise would. That's, again, a bit of a simplification, but it's broadly true. Um, so you get, you get, you know, the iron oxidized. It loses electrons and becomes the red iron of, you know, rust that we're used to. And, we, you know, we look at Mars and we see that color. So that could mm. never have happened in the original meteorites that Mars was uh, generated from, but because of the evolution of this differentiated body, you wind up with different minerals. Simpler process than the evolution of life, but nevertheless still, um, still you know, a, a noticeable principle. And then if you have a planet like Earth, which first of all, we have liquid water at the surface, so that gives you an entire huge new classes of minerals that are accessible when rock reacts with liquid water. So we have hydroxides, we have clays, we have a lot of other silicate minerals that have a little bit of water in their structure in one form or another. Those are brand new minerals that would be difficult mm. to generate 
in the original uh, solar nebula, from the original sort of chondrules, little particles that first condensed out of the solar nebula. Um, and then, of course, the final, the cherry on top for us on Earth, is that eventually life, you know, and so here the evolution of biology is going in tandem with the evolution of minerals, life starts yeah. generating oxygen, which, of course, is what allows the generation of eukaryotic cells because they need, they need so much energy to function, they need oxygen. That's the most efficient form of uh, metabolism is, mm. to take, is to take stuff in and burn, you know, burn sugars with oxygen, burn other or organic uh, compounds with oxygen. Um, and then that also, the pumping of all that oxygen into the Earth's atmosphere means that we get super oxidized minerals that you'd never see anywhere else um, unless you had such a strange alien planet as Earth. Because, you know, if, if life could somehow evolve on sort of an ordinary podunk planet like uh, Mercury or Mars or Venus, well, it would, you know, it would then turn its telescope at Earth and, you know, get out its spectrometer and say, what in God's name is all of that oxygen? I mean, it'd be the same thing as, it'd be very similar to if we had an atmosphere full of chlorine gas. We're just, mm -hmm. we're just so heavily prepared. Our cells are just so heavily armored against the, you know, the burning caustic effects of oxygen although we just don't think about it. <laughs> the fact that things catch on fire in this atmosphere is, I mean, unbelievably unstable. <laughs> oh, you can't, do, you can't set things on fire in Venus's atmosphere, right? Kind of counterintuitive. Venus is really hot, but you, how could you set anything on fire? It's just carbon dioxide. It's already stable and happy and oh. as it can be. And if you take, you know, wood, you know, what's wood going to do? That's just going to sit there, you know, how, however hot. I mean, it will destructively distill. It will, you know, parts of it, the volatile parts of it will separate out, and you might wind up with something that looks sort of charcoal-ish, but it won't catch fire. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that, that's you know, a, an example from geology that's going to need to think about, you know, that everything in the universe is changing. You know, even a, even a star goes through, you know, its, its own evolution and its own life cycle. Um, you know, and things, and the universe is not the same for there having been the star. Like I said, you know, supernovas. But even ordinary, you know, smaller stars like the sun are changing. They're changing hydrogen into helium. They're changing if they get, you know, if they're heavier, if they're as heavy as the sun, I think the sun is supposed to start uh, burning helium to carbon and oxygen. It'll get at least that far. And if you have even bigger stars, then, of course, they make all the other elements of the periodic table. If it wasn't for stars, we would only have hydrogen and helium. Yeah. Okay. Well. But that's so, you know, and again, to bring that back to religion, that's kind of you know, and and the religious person you know looks at this and says, okay, you know, that's the that's the mechanism by which you know that that's the um that's the method you know by which the divinity decided that things would you know progress. You know, wrote these wrote so to speak these simple laws for the universe. And then they've piled, you know, the, the objects that obey these laws pile themselves into larger and more diverse, um, you know, structures. And mm. that's not something that we need to be afraid of. Yeah. So change is truly a constant in, in the universe. And I also like your point about how that's uh, um, the developments in geology 
go hand in hand in a sense with the developments in biology. So mm-hmm. change is a constant, and there's a certain uh, uh, holistic reality that is also a constant. Uh, everything is connected to everything else, uh, and uh, religion seems to be a part of that. Yeah, and and it's and the idea that that's you know that this progression of complexity is somehow opposed to religion is a very you know modern conceit. Um, it was that oh, people oh. had a certain sort of fossilized idea. I mean. If you look at, you know, the first chapter of Genesis, you know, what, you no, know, with the structure, it's, it's a stru- you know, it's, it's laying out, you know, things in terms of increasing complexity. You know, it's, it's sort of our natural expectation. We see that, um, you know, and, and, and even the people at the time, you know, were aware to some extent of, you know, the progress of history that, you know, they had started as individual people and, you know, gathered themselves into larger and larger political units. I mean, you can read the whole, you know, the book of Judges and the book of, the first book of Samuel. There's, you know, there's commentary on, on that, you know, the evolution of human political structures. Hmm. Huh. That, that re- often repeated comment in the book of Judges, uh, to explain whatever terrible thing has just happened. <laughs> terrible, several terrible things happened in the book of Judges. Um, but, you know, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone just did what he thought best. Right. Right. <laughs> with with the dry, you know, implied, and it turned out really well, didn't it? Um, especially those episodes at the end. But yeah, that's that's getting a little too far astray. <laughs> right. But, but you think but about. Think it... Sorry, what were you saying? Well, no, I was going to say I I I think that the takeaway message, a lot of people. Uh, have from at least the Old Testament is, and and I think even uh, uh, Jesus himself uh, says or suggests this that that God is unchanging and that God's rules are unchanging. But it also mm-hmm. sounds like um, uh, one of one of God's rules it does indeed uh, not only envision but require change. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's the strange thing is how a universe where we've you know demonstrated to most people's satisfaction that disorder is always increasing, that yeah, entropy yeah. is always increasing, and yet the progress of the universe has been to more and more differentiated, specialized, organized objects, and that um, that entropy is is being shed into the sort of intervening space. But it's still it's it's sort of delightfully contrarian, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the way God uh, seems to have set these things up. Yeah. So that idea that we uh, often take away from religion about uh, these uh, silos that separate religion and science—that's uh, a—that's a—that's um, an unnecessary entrapment of our thinking and our ability to understand the universe and to solve problems within the universe. Right. I mean, I, I think a lot of it goes to, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, the last, again, the last 500 years of history of the West has been about a rebellion against the hypocrisy of, you know, the church as it was in the 15th century, you know, right. being, you know, 
the you know hypocrisy most most notably economically and you know in terms of political power you know that the disciples the people who are you know leading the society in the name of you know the most you know the, the most humble <laughs> broke uh, persecuted prophet you know this Jesus of Nazareth guy who spent 30 years as you know a carpenter and the first several years of his life as a you know a refugee and then he you know he spends a few years wandering Judea dodging attempts to give him political power and then he gets nailed mm -hmm. to a cross and you know on the way said several disparaging things about you know the love of wealth in itself and how you know rich people behave bequeath that legacy to his disciples who preserved it for us in the New Testament I mean you know go right. read the letter one of many reasons to go read the letter of James again um, and that these people were then you know by the 15th century you know ensconced in places of power very comfortable you know wealthy gluttonous in a lot of cases I mean obviously this didn't describe everybody but it was enough that people at large were you know scandalized by it and people took advantage of that and began this rebellion against and that and that has continued you know down to the present and anything anything that can be used as a stick to beat that you know that old hypocritical institution can and will be you know used whether it fits or not whether it's really you know suitable or not and then of course you know once you get the Protestant churches then people begin to rebel against the Protestant churches and 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 they'll you know and and then you know the and then the political you know the secular political structures that have you know succeeded them you know it's it's a dim it's a bleak bleak world that you know the the sort of quote progressive uh, mindset or at least you know a lot of people or at least I mean a, a, an aspect of a lot of people's mindset seems to be this perpetual you know everything's terrible um, and it's just a question of identifying the next thing to rebel against and yeah. criticism is good and you know we've certainly gotten a long way but it's you know it's worth worrying whether we've reached some sort of tipping point in terms of uh, have we have we stopped making progress um, by by simply looking at things and looking around for the next thing to tear down mm-hmm mm no, you're right. That's an all too common viewpoint still today. And it's interesting that uh, that traces back at least to the 15th century, if not even uh, earlier. It makes me uh, think of a certain four word phrase. That's so second millennium. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Perhaps perhaps it's time for, a, you know, perhaps it's time to uh, look around for a different trend to uh, to latch on to. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, that that oh, would be sort of a thing. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe that's a very good place to um, pause with this episode. And I think now we've really started pulling together uh, more in-depth scientific understandings and more in-depth challenges to religious understandings. And not in a kind of heretical sense in any way, but more just uh, asking, you know, what else can we 
learn where where else can our uh, faith understandings and scientific understandings take us from here? Is that basically where we're going from here in the episodes ahead? Uh, to, to put it pretty broadly, I mean, our conversation before we started here, we talked about uh, going to, uh, you know, maybe talking a little bit about philosophy of science and then and then looking at this this very pervasive idea about you know religion and science being in altogether separate boxes, um, yeah. whether whether we whether, whether we might probe that a little bit and see if there aren't some similarities between religious thinking and scientific thinking, if if they're really just you know complete you know there's this idea that you know science you know the last 400 years of of Western science just represents a complete break from the way that human beings have thought about anything in the past. I yeah. doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have my own sort of doubts about that. I mean, obviously, there, there's a sociological phenomenon of science and things have changed, you know, obviously drastically. But yeah. I think that's overstated. Anything, I mean, and again, that goes back to this mindset of rebellion. We're always looking for this thing that you thought was common sense. It's completely false. Look at this. Yeah. Look at you know, how fantastic you know you thought this. You thought you knew what things were. I mean, and that's you know, you, you need to be able to think that way to get to quantum physics, for example. You need to be able oh. to, to accept that. You need to be able to accept that when it comes across your you know, when it when it shoots itself across your bow. You need to be able to observe it and believe it. Um. When when the when the evidence forces you to that, but on the other hand, that's become a fad. <laughs> that's just become the way of getting people's attention, and it, you know it happens over and over again in all branches of academia, and sometimes it's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, frequently in these yeah. latter days, it's pretty sad. Well, it sounds like the path ahead for the podcast is the continuing adventure of breaking ourselves out of some traps in thinking that we've uh, been suffering for a, a long time and still having a lot of uh, faith and trust in both science and religion, but seeing where there's potential for fresher perspectives, more holistic perspectives, more connected perspectives. Shall we, shall we leave it at that for, for this episode? Yeah, we're a long way from uh, finding any internal inconsistencies in our, you know, our working hypothesis that you can believe in both science and uh, the Catholic faith at the same time. So that's a good place yeah, to stop for here and uh, to look forward to next episode. Very good. Looking forward to it here, too. Thanks very much, Paul, as always. All right. Thank you, Bill. <laughs>